Well, hello and welcome to The Mariner with me, Chris Stammel Major. And I thought we'd start to take a look at some of the famous boats of history. It's uh, something that's very easy to dovetail into what we're doing. We're talking about all sorts of things to do with sailing and seamanship and being on the water and all the rest of it. A few diversions. We were talking about uh, the Ukraine in the last one. I got lots of uh, very interesting feedback on that one. Um, some people saying, hey, stick to sailing. And other people saying, you know, this is this is where the world is now. I've been one of the guys I've been watching on uh, YouTube most recently uh, doing things about um, the, the truckers protest in Canada. Um, his normal job is a mechanic. So I think there's room for crossover, but I've got to make sure that I have lots of sailing content for those who like that if I'm going to have my little follies talking about other things. So if we're going to start talking about famous boats and ships through history, which I think is definitely in the wheelhouse of this podcast, then I figured the one to start with is Noah's Ark. <laughs> so um, I think going into this, um, I'm going to I'm going to put my cards on the table nice and early, so you know where I uh, know where I'm at. Um, I'm I'm not a religious person, but I'd say that I'm a spiritual person. If you're out on the ocean in very um, difficult, dangerous circumstances uh, for a lot of your working life, then you do get into circumstances where <laughs> it would be logical to start to ask for somebody's help from above, you know. Um, I think a lot of people that go out onto the sea, of course, are religious. It always have been historically. Um, prayers for sailors and, uh, and, and seamen's missions, that kind of stuff. I think religion and the sea have been connected for a very long time. Um, I think that the discussion of Noah's Ark doesn't necessarily have to be a religious discussion. Now, I think that uh, to to justify that, here's the thing. If um, if Noah's Ark does exist, it doesn't prove the rest of the Bible. If Noah's Ark doesn't exist, it doesn't disprove the rest of the Bible. So we can take it as being um, an interesting source of uh, research, and we can look at the physicalities of it and the, the realities of it, the history of it. The Old Testament is probably the oldest piece of uh, written text that we have available in the Western world. Um, a Chinese text go back perhaps a little further, but if you're looking for something really old, um, west of west of where? West of the Tigris, then you need to be looking at the Old Testament. And there's loads and loads of information there which does line up with historical facts that we can easily understand. So as we go into the discussion, I'm looking at the boat and I'm looking at uh, research that's been done on it. I've been looking at uh, the physicality of it. And um, of course, any of the issues that I bring up that relate to whether it may or may not have existed um, can easily be, of course, overcome by someone for whom this is an important foundation of their religious beliefs because they can, of course, just apply their belief to the fact that, well, whatever Chris says, I still believe it was there. And that's totally and utterly um, uh, justifiable in this circumstance. So having put that to one side, um, we live in a world, of course, we've got to be very careful what you uh, say and how you push things forward. And I don't I don't mind that a little bit. I think it's good to be uh, to be cautious when you're speaking and it's good to understand who's listening. So I mean, no disrespect. Um, uh, but let's have a look at the story of the Ark and where it comes from. And I've got the Wikipedia page open in front of me. And this is kind of new for me doing this uh, on YouTube and doing the podcast as well. So it means kind of what I have to do is try and do it without 
editing too much. Um, so I'm going to be reading some things and learning some things. I got some good ideas of what I want to talk about already. Um, I'm going to kick it off by by connecting it to my uh, personal story. Um, and then we'll kind of go from there. So let's have a seat. In the UK, uh, in the late 1990s, there was a vessel which was potentially going to be scrapped. And myself and a lot of other people all kind of disconnected, but from the marine world, um, were pushing to try and do whatever we possibly could to get this vessel saved. Okay. Now the vessel was called um, Carrick, or its other name was the Spirit of Adelaide. And it was a sister ship to the Cutty Sark. Now the Cutty Sark is a boat that, or a ship rather, that everybody has heard of. Um, it was one of the famous um, vessels engaged in the, the, the tea clipper era, the grain clipper era, the wool coming from Australia. The city of Adelaide was her sister ship, but she did more like coal and, and wool. And it wasn't quite as fancy and quite as uh, exciting as um, what was going on with the Cutty Sark. But she is the sister ship in that she has the same construction methods. Now, why do I start from here? I start from here because those ships are the only ones, the Cutty Sark and the, and the uh, Spirit, uh, City of Adelaide, are the only vessels in the UK which are rated A1 under the Historic Ships Register. And they're rated that way because they mark a very important changing point between vessels having um, wooden frames and wooden planking, and then these vessels having metal frames and wooden planking. And I connect this into my own experience. I was for a while the skipper of a, uh, a vessel called Merry Maid, which was built in 1904. And Merry Maid is of uh, large historical importance. I believe she's like the 35th most important wooden vessel in the world or something like this. She's unbelievably original. Um, but she also is an example of metal frames, cast iron riveted frames, and then with a wooden uh, shell over that. I think she was inch and a inch and a quarter pitch pine. So why why are we starting here, Chris? We're talking about Noah's Ark. Well, this tangent has a point, as they sometimes do, and that is that there are limitations on materials. And I think if we're going to have a discussion about a, a, a real world item, completely separating it from its religious connotations, then we need to start with what are identifiable, provable facts. And we can start from the fact that there is an upper limit to the size of a wooden vessel. There is an upper limit to the size that can be constructed in wood. It doesn't matter how massive the timbers are. It doesn't matter what you do to bolster it and to support it and structure and all the rest of it. Unless you're going to make it out of solid wood, like with no internal spaces, then you are going to be limited by the mechanical abilities of wood as a material. So um, the vessel which proved this was the Wyoming. Now, if you're watching this on YouTube, I'll flash up a little image here of the Wyoming. Um, she was the largest vessel ever uh, created um, out of purely wood, and she came with quite a few issues. Um, she was, um, let me see how long she was. She was 450 feet long. She was the largest uh, wooden ship ever built, and she was capable of carrying 6,600 tons. That's 6,000 long tons. Um, and she moved coal primarily. Um, the Wyoming is basically the same size. Uh, if you take one of the measurements for the Ark, then the Wyoming is the same length as Noah's Ark. Uh, the Noah's Ark was 300 cubits long, which we're going to get to that a little bit later on. And that's about the same as the Wyoming. So can you build something out of wood? 
Yes, you can. But if it goes to C, um, it's going to start being subject to the forces imposed upon it by being up on top of one wave in the middle or alternatively caught between two waves, one at the bow, one at the stern. This creates the, um, the, the flex in the vessel, which we know as hogging and sagging. So if something hogs, then the bow is down, the center of the ship is up and the stern is down. And if it's sagging, then the opposite, the center of the vessel is down while the ends are up. And hogging and sagging is still a massive issue on metal ships, particularly when you are loading very big ships these days to the point that what they'll often do is they will uh, hog the boat first. They'll load up the bow, load up the stern, and that slightly bends the boat. The buoyancy in the center keeps the center of the uh, cargo space um, where it was and the, the ends go down. And then uh, when that's done, then you put the weight into the center and the whole lot kind of compresses back together as that uh, curved backbone of the boat becomes straight again with the weight in the center. It pins the cargo in place. And to go too far with that would to be break the back of the ship, which is possible. So um, at 300 cubits long, the Wyoming is proof enough that the um, arc could be physically built. It was done, however, uh, many, many years after the Ark went to sea. It was built in 1909, and the, the woodworking skills, the material skills, and the knowledge of the people in 1909, I think we have to recognize that their woodworking skill and their tools available to them were very different from those potentially of somebody building an Ark thousands of years before the start of the modern calendar. So uh, the Wyoming. Now, the Wyoming, um, for the entirety of her life, had a lot of issues with um, water ingress into the bilges, and she had to basically run her pumps the entire time. And unfortunately, um, it all kind of came down to um, a pretty, pretty sad end for the Wyoming. Let me just get my numbers up in front of me here. So she was lost in 1924, and there's a, a nice um, write-up here for the University of Houston, I believe it is. I'll, I'll read what you, she says. Um, she served for 15 years. Then in March 1924, she headed from Norfolk to New Brunswick and uh, a, a terrible storm arose just as she reached Pollock Rip, a channel through the uh, 10 mile stretch of water separating Nantucket from Cape Cod. So Cape Cod is that little hook of land that um, if you go from New York and head east, 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 um, the last little dash of land out there, that's Cape Cod, big tidal rips through that very kind of nasty part of the world. You can avoid it by going through the Cape Cod Canal, but um, not in these days and not with a ship of this size. So um, she, um, a terrible storm arose as she reached Pollock Rip and uh, the Wyoming stopped there to ride out the storm. Then her size caught up with her the same way it had uh, with large wooden ships a century earlier. The so-called ship of the line had been the largest 18th century warship. It carried maybe 100 guns on three decks. It was massive and it bent with the waves, distorting its design and shape. Slow and sluggish, these old sailing ships had been only half as long as the Wyoming. America developed a new frigate design during well, the War of 1812, somewhat smaller than ships of the line, and braced internally to prevent bending. These frigates finally gave us an edge against the vaunted British Navy. They also heralded the innate weakness of large wooden ships, their inability to hold one shape. Wyoming's designers had likewise stiffened her with internal steel bracing, but she was too big. She still bent and twisted at sea. Gaps opened in her planking and let water in. Normally her pumps could handle the leakage, but the Pollock Rip storm was too much. She sank, taking 13, although I saw elsewhere it was 14, uh, taking 14 sailors down with her.
Okay, so that's the deal on the Wyoming. So a little read in there about the ships of the line. It is very difficult to build a vessel that does not flex on the open ocean. So how do we connect all this back to the Ark? We need to go into the Ark story looking for some facts because if we're going to go and find something that's up a mountain or wherever it might be, then the thing that we find in the end must adhere to rational principles of material technology um, and it will it will back up what's in the Bible or it will change what's in the Bible or it's a vessel that's not connected to the Bible or whatever it is. But if you want to go and find an artifact, that artifact, if it exists, is going to have to fit in with physics. Um, I think that, uh, you know, if, if God wanted to save the world in this manner, it is a complicated... It's a complicated thing to put together a person to build it, a team to build it, the materials to build it, and then the thing that he does, which is the mystery of religion, is bends the laws of physics so that the boat doesn't bend at sea. It's like, why didn't he just give them a solution which was a little bit easier and didn't require so much um, bending of small elements of reality to, to make it work out? So... This all being said, let's get back to the Ark proper. We go into it now knowing that there's a bit of a question mark here as to can a, a ship of this vessel really, really work? Can it, can it happen? So um, reading now from the um, Wikipedia page, of course, we always take everything we find online with a, uh, a dash of salt or a bucket of seawater, depending on what's going on. But um, I know from wider research and, and knowledge on this that what's in the wikipedia page is pretty vanilla and um covers quite nicely what's happening so let's let's look at the ark as it appears in the christian bible we can also look at it through mesopotamian um legend and cuneiform uh, tablets that have got some information on this and we can look at it through the eyes of the torah as well um and sorry and uh, look at it through the eyes of the quran that's the other thing as well there's a lots of um, evidence in all of these very old texts that surround the ark one thing we can say is they all have an ark story in them so um uh, the, the ark is the is the vessel from the genesis flood narrative as we know okay so god spares noah and his family and uh, and examples of all the world's animals from a world engulfing flood the story in Genesis is repeated with variations in the Quran where the Ark appears as Safinat um, and uh, Al-Fulk. I believe those are the words there from uh, from the Quran. Searches for Noah's Ark have been made at least at the time of Eusebius, which is 275 to 339 in the modern calendar. So people were already looking for the Ark 1800 years ago. So as we go into this, we can say that there is there are the facts of the fact that people have been looking for this for a long time. People have known about the Ark or known of the Ark for a very long time, and they've been looking for it. We can definitely say that. Um, we have continued to search for it in modern times. But as yet, in 2022, no confirmable physical proof of the Ark has ever been found. No scientific evidence has been found that Noah's Ark existed as it was described in the Bible. More significantly, there is no evidence of a global flood and most scientists agree that such a ship and natural disaster would both be impossible. Now I can feel people's hackles going up if you are religious, but let's just let's keep, keep calm for a second because I don't think this completely discounts it. We can, there are other ways of looking at this. 
Some researchers believe that a real, though localized, flood event uh, in the Middle East could potentially have inspired the oral and later written narratives. A Persian Gulf flood or a Black Sea deluge 7,500 years ago has been proposed as such a historical candidate. Okay, so there's a lot of information there, but we can get down to the bottom of it. So was there an ark? Well, we have no proof of it. Would there be remains of a wooden vessel now? Hmm, let's have a think. So how many remains are there now of wooden vessels compared to the number of wooden vessels that have existed? Like very few. Okay, so we can say that as a fact as well. Wooden vessels don't often survive very, very long um, after their operational life. If something is to become fossilized, it has to be completely covered in mud. When dinosaur bones or petrified wood uh, is found, it's because those animals or that wood was completely engulfed by mud. And then over time, you've got mineral exchange. When you're digging up um, dinosaur bones, you're not digging up actual bone. You're digging up um, basically mineral deposits, which have the exact shape of the bones that they replaced over time. If you can do that with wood, it's even more kind of complicated, but it has to be sealed in. Um, there are ways that it could last longer if it was covered in pitch and tar, which we're going to talk about. But the likelihood of any wooden vessel surviving is low. Okay. Now, what about this flood thing? Well, let's let's bring in some super up to date uh, information, which could could help out here. So it seems that um, from about 2017 onwards, we now have a lot of information which indicates that uh, about 11,800 years ago, during a period known as the Younger Dryas, we have a, a, a massive flood event in the world. Okay, And that flood event, which was primarily in the Northern Hemisphere, changed sea levels by up to potentially 100 feet in a day and up to 400 feet over a year. So as most human beings in the world live within about 100 kilometers of the sea, and of those about 50% of them live no more than 50 meters above the level of the sea, something going up by that amount, <clears throat> pardon me, by going up by that amount that quickly would be catastrophic. Now, how do we know about this Younger Dryas thing? We have found in very recent years, like 2017, a massive crater in the Hiawatha Glacier and the western side of Greenland. It was um, kind of uh, difficult to find because it was still under the ice now, but we're able to do ice core sampling and we're able to see where there's crushed and damaged ice above a solid level of ice. And we can see with LIDAR satellites the bowl of this thing. I think it's about 23, uh, no, sorry, 18 kilometers across. So a huge something or other, rubble pile or lump of whatever it was, hit the world about uh, 11,800 years ago. Um, we have a lot of evidence now coming from the fact that uh, this caused basically every volcano on the planet to erupt because its massive impact was about 23 million Hiroshima's was the equivalent. And um, that cr basically set everything on fire, like everywhere. So in archaeological terms, what we have is something called the black mat layer, which is uh, one of the strata that you can dig down through when you're doing your archaeological or geological uh, research. And there's this black carbonaceous layer about 11,800 
100 years ago, which is where a lot of stuff burnt, okay? It's also the exact time that the uh, short-faced bear and the saber-toothed tiger and the giant ground-dwelling sloth, they all died out, along with all the woolly mammoths in North America. Woolly mammoths who went from um, eating uh, spring flowers to dead with broken legs in an instant, judging from the, the remains of the animals that we've dug up. So we know something very, very serious happened. When it hit, it hit the Laurentide Glacier, which at that time went all over the area where I am here now in Nova Scotia, and it um, would have caused massive va vaporization. When that happened, the sky would go dark, and basically it pushed the world into um, a the equivalent of a nuclear winter, uh, an ice age, for um, about a thousand years, a bit more than a thousand years. Now, this ice age was not all over the planet. It was all over the northern hemisphere, um, basically centered around North America. Um, you've got massial glacial lakes. Um, is it uh, Lake? Uh, what's the na name of that lake now? A giant Lake Vizula. I'm, f I'm getting the wrong name for it. I'll have to think about that for a second, but it's... Um, uh, uh, giant glacial lakes, which would be water trapped underneath uh, ice. As you get in Antarctica now, we know that there are lakes underneath the ice in Antarctica. Um, when this thing hit, there'd be massive flooding from them. And some people would say that's where a lot of our um, flood uh, flood ideas come from, that humans all over the world seem to have this idea that there was a giant flood. More specifically in the Middle Eastern area, um, through the Persian uh, Gulf flood or the Black Sea deluge, which is more like 7,500 years ago, you may have had localized events which caused this kind of story. But again, taking a fact, can we say that there have been very large floods which would be highly memorable for humans living at the time? The answer to that is definitely yes. So, so far we've got that uh, you can build a boat 300 cubits long, but if you do, it's going to work and it's going to um, bend and it's going to be very complicated to keep that thing at sea using anything other than basically 20th century uh, wooden uh, uh, engineering, wood engineering. Um, but yes, there was a flood. There are floods. We know that. Um, there is a lot of information around the ark in all sorts of different uh, areas. So um, uh, a big boat, it would seem, did exist. Could a boat live that long, kind of survive that long thereafter? Well, it's going to be difficult. It's going to have to be fossilized somehow. And that, but we've got some facts here. So I think sometimes when we're looking at the Bible, if you want to take everything like super factually, it gets a little bit complicated. Like even I studied the Bible um, as part of a religion and philosophy uh, course when I was 18 for two years. And it was great. The teacher, Mr. Maloney, who taught us then, absolutely fantastic guy, did a great job uh, of uh, teaching us all about uh, what was in the Bible. And then the next lesson would be philosophy that uh, sought to undermine what was in the Bible. And the next lesson would be about the Bible and the next lesson against it. So I, I learned to kind of uh, assess what's going on in the Bible um, with a balanced viewpoint. And the, the good that has happened because of the Bible is not lost on me. But neither is the evil that has come through it. So we have to take everything with uh, a pinch of salt. But if you're uh, looking for things that can back it up, there's certainly lots to back it up. Um, if you want it to be exactly the way it was in the Bible, then we do have a few problems because the story which is, um, is uh, uh, in, in the Bible is that the ark came to rest on Mount Ararat. And we do start to get into a few problems there. Um, Mount Ararat, as it is now, is part of a, um, 
is, is uh, a complicated option for being the place where the ark came to rest. Um, you're looking at a place in the world which is over 5,000 meters above sea level, and that creates a bit of a problem. Um, it is not possible for the world to flood that deep. <laughs> okay, let's just put it that way. If we stick to the facts now, people say, well, there could be underwater water. Well, yes, yes, there is water under. Uh, hang on, what am I saying? Underwater water, underground water. There could be aquifers of water underground and water comes up from them. Well, yeah, absolutely, it can do. But we all know that, you know, if you flood something in, if you flood in with seawater, it's going to go over the top of the water that's underground. The two are going to mix together, but there is not enough water in the aquifer under the areas where we live and surrounding areas to then push the ocean water up by five thousand meters even if antarctica and um and the arctic and all of the equatorial glaciers and all of the mountain tops and everything above the snow line everywhere in the world all main melted simultaneously there is barely enough water to lift the ocean by another hundred meters okay we are already in quite a warm period of the world most of the water on our planet is at the moment in vapor or in liquid form very little of it is actually in um, solid form so it wasn't a problem for the religious um, people that were putting forward this story like back in the day because uh, they believed at that time that the world was a flat disk like the um, flat earth thing that we were discussing in the last episode. Um, it was a flat disk with a firmament over top and then around it were, were open waters. There was plenty of water around the firmament of the world to come in and flood the world. So... Whilst they did not have a problem to be able to say the water was so deep that the ark ended up on Mount Ararat, we do because we understand enough about our world to be able to say these are facts and we can't kind of bend that. So of all the places that you might find an ark, 5,000 meters up a mountain is not one of the places I would have thought that you would find it. Okay, is that, <laughs> is that delicately enough put? Um, let's have a look a bit further down here. It says the structure of the ark. And we talked about this a little bit already, of course, with the Wyoming. Um, I think it's very important for me to kind of go through this um, as it's written down because somebody's taken a lot of time to put all this information in one place. I don't want to uh, stretch it out too far. Um, but we start to see here a little bit of the fact that um, when you're dealing with religious text, you're often dealing with um, very important numbers which are being promulgated through the text as well. And we see this repetition of particular numbers. When that goes on for thousands of years, the numbers can start kind of tripping over themselves and start um, becoming problematic to the factuality of the story. So the structure of the ark and the chronology of the flood is homologous with the Jewish temple and temple worship. Okay, Accordingly, Noah's instructions are given to him by God in Genesis um, uh, 6.14. And the ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Commonly, this is believed um, that the cubit is about 18 inches or the length of a man's arm from elbow to fingertip. 
Scripture, however, in conformity with its parallel to the temple, prescribes unique measurements for such a sacred or long cubit. And in Ezekiel 43.13, the dimensions for the sacred altar at the temple are noted to be in such cubits as that the cubit being a cubit and a handbreadth, kind of like a royal cubit for the Egyptians. It's a bit bigger. But that would make these cubits 21 to 25 inches long. It would this all of this together would result in an arc which is somewhere between 525 and 624 feet long, 87.5 to 104 feet wide, and 52.5 to 62.4 feet in depth. Okay, if you're looking at it as a box, uh, and that's roughly the size of the aircraft carrier USS Independence, which I'll flash a quick picture up here for those watching on YouTube. Um, the reasoning for this is more to do with the religious text that they come from, and that is these dimensions are based on a numerological preoccupation with the number 60, and the same characterizing the vessel of the Babylonian flood hero. We're going to talk about that in just a second. Okay, It's three internal divisions inside the ark, this is what scripture says, reflect the three-part universe imagined by ancient Israelites, the heaven, the earth, and the underworld. Each deck is the same height as the temple in Jerusalem, itself a microcosmic world of the universe, or sorry, microcosmic model of the universe, um, and each is three times the area of the court of the tabernacle in the, in the temple, leading to the suggestion that the author saw both the ark and the tabernacle as serving for the preservation of human life. It has a door in the sign and a tosar, which may be either a roof or a skylight. It is made of gopher wood, and a word which appears nowhere else in the Bible. It's divided into quinim, a word which uh, also uh, always refers to birds' nests elsewhere in the Bible, and that's led some uh, scholars to amend this to quanim, uh, which means reeds. Okay, so it's divided into nests, but I can kind of imagine that. If you're going to put animals inside, like giving each of them a nest, like that kind of makes sense. Um, the finished vessel is to be smeared with copper, meaning pitch or bitumen. In Hebrew, the two words are closely related, okay? Now, this is something that comes up. People say, if the, if the ark was made of uh, gopher wood, what is gopher wood? Um, the, the area of the world that we're talking about here, now, it's kind of like the same story with Egypt, which, as you know, is something I'm very interested in. They talk about, oh, we moved all these giant stones on rollers made from wood. And the question, of course, then is, where did you get the wood from? Because those kind of hard hardened big trees with hard wood don't really exist in that part of the world. Um, we're somehow deciding that there's uh, some other kind of wood that no longer exists, which they were using. But the, the clue could be there, and I've seen that written elsewhere, that in Hebrew, um, the word uh, kofa um, means pitch, or sorry, kopa means pitch or bitumen, and that the, um, the wood that they're talking about may have been wood covered in pitch. And that's like, oh, okay, well, that's, I think that's back on the side of the, of the ark, isn't it? It's like, yeah, okay, you didn't build it out of um, trees that no longer and have never lived, uh, never existed in the area that we're talking about, but you could have covered it uh, with pitch and then described it as pitched wood, which wow, totally makes sense. I'm on side with that. Um, the main thing that came up for us in the last couple of hundred years when it relates to the ark, which, you know, the ark story has been a big deal for a long time, is that we got our first glimpse in the 1800s that there um, may well have been um, a, uh, a version of Noah's ark that is in cuneiform. Now, cuneiform, of course, is the, um, the written 
um, language of the uh, Babylonians and Sumerians and some of the earliest people that we uh, have have come across in in our uh, geological no our, our archaeological digs. Um, it's that funny little writing that looks like lots of little arrows, all kind of like little nails laid down together. And it was only um, uh, first uh, um, translated in the 1800s. At which point they were using best guesses, <laughs> to be absolutely honest, to to try and uh, interpret what was going on in these tablets. I think the thing we need to understand is that at the time that those tablets were written writing did not have the same place in the world that it does now same with any ancient text the the quran the torah the bible anything like that it's not like everybody was uh, stopping by the newsstand and reading what was on the cuneiform tablet or everybody had one of these in their in their house very few people would have access to this kind of um, information and from what they saw on the page, they may just about be able to understand kind of what the message it is that's being translated. You know, when one of your friends sends you a load of weird emojis all together, and they obviously had an idea in their head of what this was communicating, but you look at it and think, Gee, are they, is this like a come on? Or is this a joke? Are they insulting me? Like, where, where exactly is this going? If most of the things are smiling, I take it to be kind of kind of a positive thing if there are any eggplants in there I kind of know where that's going and uh, if there's lots of frowny things I know I'm in trouble that's about the level of understanding that a lot of people have had when you're talking about people reading cuneiform 5,000 years ago so the question we'd have to ask is if you're finding it written down on a cuneiform tablet why is it written there and I read a little bit about that um, on one of these <laughs> I've been through quite a few web pages for this and they were saying the fact that um, the stories would need to be passed on from um, from from teller to teller, from from the teller to the audience, but also between the people who were the story uh, creators. And what they would often do is they'd write down like what's the most important details to have in the story. And because the people of those times knew about boats and they knew about the kind of boats that they had, the numbers that were included in there would kind of need to make sense so that they could go like, oh yeah, this sounds like a real story. So it has a realism about it. So you might well end up with a cuneiform tablet, which really has just a list of kind of dimensions and, and some, some chronology, and you're not really getting the story. That's not the story as it was being told at the time. That's just like the, uh, the cliff notes that for, for, for the text, you know. So the, the first time that we start to get uh, an idea that there may well have been something going on uh, before... Um, before the uh, the Bible's version of the Ark is when we started to translate this cuneiform and we started to find out about the Epic of Gilgamesh. And the Epic of Gilgamesh is one of the oldest stories passed down to us now. And it includes the fact that there was an Ark built um, in Babylonian times, um, which was uh, has a lot of striking similarities to the story of the Ark um, in, in the Bible. And I think the thing that I like about this is that there's actually... The opportunity for a a greater level of possibility of realism of of, of practical um, practical seamanship that's like okay this this might have actually been a thing um, if you haven't found him online elsewhere you need to look up um, Professor Finkel um, what's his first name now I forget he looks like like Santa's steroid ridden brother he's like some some like what a guy should look like if you work at the British Museum. And um, he's got a wonderful book, which is called um, Flood, Noah and the Ark. Um, 
or sorry, the iconic story of the flood, Noah and the ark. But um, he is, uh, he got this um, tablet brought into him in the 1980s, I think, first, where someone kind of brought in some things to like be um, uh, um, valued, essentially, <laughs> at the British Museum, although I don't think they actually do that. They'll tell you it's got historical importance, but, but someone brought all this stuff in and he saw as someone who you know reads cuneiform and is interested in that kind of stuff he saw this tablet had chit chat on on it all about the epic of gilgamesh and the making of the of the ark and at that time however he wasn't able to get the person to leave the tablet with them but a number of years later it came back into his circle he was able to decode what was in it and the story that it had was of a an ark indeed um but more a uh, a story um centered around the construction of a coracle now, a coracle is a, a round boat, and coracles are the most early form of boats. Um, they are a very interesting vessel because they basically crop up everywhere that people start to go out onto the water. It's the kind of first thing that people think to do. Um, they are incredibly buoyant. They are very easy to make from reeds. They are very easy to um, uh, make more and more and more waterproof and more and more secure by coating them in pitch or tar back bitumen whatever you want to call it so the story that he got um, through this um, through this tablet was that uh, Atrahasis uh, which is the equivalent of Noah in this story um, was given information um, that he needed to build an ark to save the animals of the world um, the uh, ark that he was to build was a, a cube so it's said to begin with, with six decks of seven compartments, each divided into nine subcompartments, giving you 63 subcompartments per deck and 378 compartments in total. Um, Noah's Ark was rectangular, but with three decks. Um, the a progression is believed to have existed with the word Ark. The word Ark, we know another Ark, of course, in religion, which is the Ark of the Covenant, which is a big square box. We've seen it all on um, Indiana Jones. And it uh, it often relates to container. Now, containers in prehistory were more often round than square. You're not making containers so much out of wood. You're making containers out of, you know, like amphora, essentially, and vases and things that you can put stuff into that are round. So there is a uh, linguistic development from um, a square box, sorry, from a round thing to a square thing, but the meaning of the word arc just kind of means container. So it can mean whatever it is that you want it to mean as long as it's a container. So the coracle uh, information which starts to come into this is uh, is kind of interesting. Let me just uh, dig out here the information that I want to uh, share with you. Um, Well, that's, I guess that's important to put. The most striking similarity is the near identical deck areas of these arcs. Okay, we're talking about um, uh, 14,400 square cubits for pretty much all of these variations of the arc. That whether it's a round thing or a square thing, everybody's saying it's about 14,400 cubits square, which is kind of interesting that they should have very very similar numbers they're separated by thousands of years these stories but they have these very very similar numbers and there's more to it than that because um, professor finkel went on to actually create um, a scale model of the um 
of the arc, the round coracle arc, as described on this uh, cuneiform tablet. And if I could find the numbers here, isn't it always the same way? If you're trying to show somebody something in a book or if you're trying to share something with somebody, um, just forget trying to make it happen um, smoothly and easily if you uh, <laughs> if it's important. So within the within the cuneiform text, they gave dimensions as to how thick the rope should be that is twisted together to make the coracle. How you make a coracle is you basically start out like a circular mat. You start making a spiral in the center, and the spiral gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and then you start to shape the edges of it upwards. And then when you've got to the height and you've got a big reed basket made from a massive twisted um, rope made from um, from reeds, um, you then put internal framing to hold it together, wooden framing, and like kind of depicting out the little uh, sections of the pie, a bit like those uh, true pursuit little counter things. And so you've got reeds on the outside and this big twisted rope that's all stitched together. You've got this internal bracing and then the outside of it is covered in pitch. And the pitch that was available in the area that um, this arc was built was some of the best in the world. In Professor Finkel's Monday version of it, which they had to build in India, the pitch they could get hold of was nowhere near as um, as good. And he did comment in his little documentary about that, about the fact they had a lot of leakage, which they wouldn't have had if it was made with the correct materials from the, um, the cradle of civilization there down by the Tigris. So um, what was uh, important, I, I can't find it here for the life of me, so I'll just kind of uh, go with uh, my remembrances, but I believe that the rope which would have been, uh, had to have been created to make the ark in the sizings that are given in this original text, it would have been 574 kilometers long. So think about the scale of the task that you are asking people to do thousands of years ago to create a rope twisted together that's 574 uh it's the distance between boston and philadelphia that i remember reading that in here somewhere it's so you, you a massive rope like that now what i like about this story is that although it's gigantic task it is possible it is possible when you think about building a giant ship out of wood you get into some pretty difficult problems pretty damn quickly. Namely the fact that unless you have something that can saw wood into boards thousands of years ago, um, how exactly do you build the ark? Now you're going to get these trees. We don't know what exactly this wood is. It's gopher wood. We don't quite know what that is, but it's some kind of hardwood, hard enough to make a vessel which is not going to flex and break apart on the first three waves it hits, but it's going to be some kind of heavy wood it's going to have some kind of decent size to it to be able to get you boards that are meaningful to your construction. So maybe something that's, I don't know, 12, 18 inches in diameter, giving you four, five, six boards per, per tree that are useful to you. You're then going to shape all of those down. Now, I don't know exactly how much experience the people that do this research have in um, manufacturing things out of wood, but uh, the little experience I've got has led me to understand that if you're going to uh, bring down trees, you're going to drag them around, um, you're going to dry them out, season them, get them to the shape that you want them to get to, you better have some machinery. You better have some machinery. There is a reason why we got so much better at building stuff um, after the steam engine and after steel and after blast furnaces and all the rest of it were built. It's because it's very bloody hard to take a tree and fashion it into a series of boards that you're going to then peg together or whatever the hell it is um, any time before about, well, let's have a think. 
the you think of something like uh, the Mary Rose. That's uh, you know fourteen hundreds. Uh, if we go back a little bit before that, you've got very simple, uh, quite open boats that the Vikings are using. You know they've got planks and everything else, but this is hard won wood. And Viking ships are not very big, sixty foot at max. If you go back. 2000 years if you go said so let's go back 1500 years to the you know the very early part of the first millennium people are just digging out wooden logs basically that's how you make a boat you dig out a wood with something along the lines of an ads and that's it building houses until relatively recent you can split wood with a splitter and get what you want but to get structural timbers to get like knees like the bit that holds the deck to the sides of the boat you're going to have to shape those somehow to get deck beams to get uh you know every every part of the structural vessel that you need is gonna be very very difficult and i gotta say a tree came down in my yard here uh during the winter it's a beech tree and we've got uh, a couple sections that we want to actually get milled down and so that's probably uh 14 to 18 inches in diameter and it's about eight foot long the piece that we want to uh, cut into boards it is extraordinarily heavy I don't know how many people it's going to take to pick it up and move it, but I suspect what's going to happen is going to be levered and leveraged and pulled onto a trailer and then pulled away by a tractor because there is no way you're picking that up and moving it. The issues that come about when you say you're going to build a vessel in what we see as being like the archetypal method of, of the Christian Bible, it's a very difficult process. And I know that there is an evangelical uh, creationist group in Kentucky that have built an ark themselves, I would say, you know, I, everybody's allowed to have whatever views they want to have. And they, the creationists believe that um, uh, there is no evidence for um, evolutionary principles as outlined by Darwin, or that they say, yes, this kind of change is possible, but that it starts from a point where we are kind of like preformed as humans, and then we evolve off from there. And other animals in certain families it starts from there and moves forward and if that's what people want to believe that's completely fine as it's completely fine for me to believe whatever it is i want to believe but if they have built the ark themselves in kentucky they must know how hard it was and i would say that it would be interesting to see any other wooden constructions from the kind of time period we're talking here um, that are equally complex now compare that to the giant reed basket which is what we're talking about with the Epic of Gilgamesh and um, this uh, this massive coracle being built in the Babylonian script. And suddenly it's like, well, okay, building 574 meter long rope like thousands of years ago is massive. We know that people did do huge things. Look at the pyramids. Look at uh, um, Puma Punko in South America. Look at Tiwanaku. Look at any of these places. Like we could do things. But trying to cut wood in the way that we're talking about now we have no evidence anywhere else that they were able to do that. But it is possible that they twisted a rope together if they really, really wanted to twist a rope together. I can understand that. I feel like this helps to back it up because ultimately, I guess it comes down, you either say, like everything that's in the Bible is absolute truth and fact, and that's how I want to take it, which is fine, no problem at all. Or you say that I believe in God and this book describes, this book is a human uh, testimony given down over time um, all about God and what God's role in the world is and how he's interacted with the world previously. But if you look at like the King James text, like I study linguistics and I, I guess I study religion back in the day as well. The King James text is well known to be a political document that lots of things in there were changed around at the behest of 
King James to keep people in a situation where they would give money to the church because you could give money to the church at that time. Something which the Pope has apologized for since that you would give money to them and they would like save you in the afterlife. The problem is, of course, that we then don't really understand exactly what we're looking at. It's much easier when we deal with the original Hebrew texts and we start to understand what's in those because at least we're getting back to the, the original original here. And if we look at the um, cuneiform and it backs up the old text, then you know, even better, right? So we have the chance that a deity gave a particular human um, information that a big flood was coming. That flood may have been the kind of flood which we know actually did exist and uh, uh, gave him information on how to build an ark, uh, a container, a, a large craft, um, and that that person and his family set about and built this thing and saved themselves from a flood. Like, there's many elements of that which are totally believable. The problem is if you really, really want to make it that it's exactly the way it was in the Bible, then we get up against some kind of hard edges which are um, delineated by physics. Um, okay, so let's have a quick look a little bit further on here now. Um, let's have a see where we can go through here. Yeah, okay. Uh, linguistic parallels between Noah's and uh, uh, Atrahasi's arcs have uh, also been noted. The word used for pitch this is what we're talking about. The word used for pitch, ceiling tower or resin in Genesis is not the normal Hebrew word, but is closely related to the word used in the Babylonian story. Likewise, the Hebrew word for ark, tiva, is nearly identical to the Babylonian word for an oblong boat, which is tabu, uh, especially given that the V and the B are the same letter in Hebrew. So oblong boat, ark, container. One thing I also noted is that if you look at a lot of the very old um, uh, images of the ark, you know, and if it's stuff that we've got, it's not that that old really it's only you know i'm looking at one now by the american folk painter edward hicks from 1849 it's the top image on the um, wikipedia page the ark has this very recognizable like massive tumble home like massive rounding of the bows where the bows kind of almost rear back on themselves like a retrousse bow on a modern race boat and the sides roll in as well which is not an awful thing to have as a as a characteristic of a big boat but um if you view the ark from the front this was something that was um, um uh, discussed by irving finkel professor irving finkel in his uh, in his documentary about his, his building of his own ark um from this from this babylonian cuneiform text um if you look at a coracle the way it curves up from the water it gets wider and then it rolls back in towards its top you can see the same characteristic shapes that we now see in all of our images of arc of arcs in professor finkel's case they built like a little um uh cabin essentially on the top of it to kind of seal up and give entryway in and out and all the rest of it and suddenly you had this very rounded boat with this huge tumble home and um and this square thing on top and to me that's exactly what i think of when i think of an arc so <laughs> the ark <laughs> it's a funny one to get into but it's uh let's get into um the, the where it appears in the quran and stuff because that's kind of interesting very old text so we have a quick look at that and then we'll look at what the modern um modern people are talking about but um for those who are watching on youtube i'm going to turn the lights on in here because i don't live in a tv studio i live in a house <laughs> and unfortunately it's getting dark outside so i better put the lights on give me a second all right, that's a bit better. <laughs> God, I got to think of these things before I start, haven't I? Okay, so in the um, in the the first epistle of Peter, composed around the end of the first century A.D., so nineteen hundred odd years ago, 
It compared Noah's salvation through water to Christian salvation through baptism. Um, why is this important? There's, uh, oh, here comes my cats. Another reason to uh, be more organized before I start these. Otherwise, the cat's going to be in the in the shot as well. I've got a very chatty cat that will uh, totally talk over me if I give him half a chance. Um, the, the, now, I'm going to mess up how to say this because I don't really recognize what this is. There's something here called the Baha'i Faith. It's a relatively new religion teaching the essential worth of all religions and the unity of all people. Okay, so whether whatever that may or may not be, the Baha'i faith, um, one thing they do is that they look at the um, the ark and the flood as symbolic. Um, in Baha'i belief, only Noah's followers were spiritually alive, preserved in the ark of his teachings, and others were spiritually dead. So if we relate that back to a few other things here, you know, we don't understand now the um, the imagery which is coming through in hieroglyphics. We don't understand the imagery which is coming through in cave art. We don't understand the imagery that's coming through in a lot of things that we read in little statues from South America from thousands of years ago. We don't understand exactly what's the background to these things. A lot of things that happen in the Bible happen in lots of other texts from around the world. I've had the pleasure to to travel all over the world and listen to all sorts of people tell me about their religion and their history and there's clearly a lot of stories which are actually being passed down as giving information um, which is important to the understanding the world around you uh, a lot of what's in the bible clearly is 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 based on that as well it must be because um, it comes from a historical uh background it comes from a time when people were exchanging stories in an oral tradition because they had no other way of doing it so if you have oral uh, stories if, if you have stories which were mostly oral but written down later they are going to contain a lot of information about the world and allegories which allow us to understand the world we would have difficulty perhaps in understanding exactly all of their imagery now looking through the lens of science so not that I am thinking that the Baha'i uh, religion's idea is correct, as it says it's a very new religion, but that concept where things could be a lot more symbolic, I think, is, is very important to this. And um, the first epistle of Peter, now he's talking about the fact that uh, you could compare Noah's salvation um, to the to the salvation of Christians through baptism, but you know maybe that's what they were kind of pointing out at the beginning. Taking the opposite side of it, it's interesting when you... Do read these early accounts of uh, of the ark and they include things and we've spoke about this before on the podcast things like um, a raven being sent off to look for look for land essentially and he uh, I think he circles and then like doesn't come back but it's the dove that comes back with an olive branch right um, quite where the dove got an olive branch 5,000 when only the mountain tops are visible <laughs> 5,000 meters high uh, now, the other thing is, uh, how long did uh, Noah spend in the ark? It rained for 40 days and 40 nights, but he ended up spending over six months at sea, which is where it's important to uh, understand that uh, the structural uh, capabilities of this ark are important. And unless the, I think many people are now happy with the fact that the world does turn, that the world does have uh, weather. Um, if you're six months at sea and uh, something that big has happened in the world, like the world has been flooded 5,000 meters deep in water, um, you can have some pretty big storms. You can have a pretty big situation going on. Um, I guess there could be a lot of um, debris floating around and the 
Dove brought them back a piece of debris, but um, I don't I don't think that's what's going on here. I think they're implying that the mountain tops were available and you know could be landed upon. That the Dove had gone to some kind of bush, some kind of land, and bought a piece of the olive branch back. Not that I know that doves actually carry things in their mouths, but um, they the the point unfortunately is that. Um, where, where would he get uh, an olive branch 5,000 meters up the side of a uh, mountain? Um, it seems a little bit tricky to understand that. But the fact that they sent off land birds looking for land is very realistic in ancient navigation. Anybody who worked at sea at that time who heard, oh, yeah, they sent birds off, that person would be like, oh, this story's got a lot of truth and fact to it. So you can see what they're trying to do. They're trying to put in facts that bolster the story with reality. Um, we may have a, a kind of a uh, an obsession with some numbers that come through. We may have certain stories that are coming through. We've got political kind of things changing over time. We've got a real um, churn going on here in this story. Something underneath it is correct. Something to do with flooding and being saved from flooding in a boat of whatever shape is real. How they knew to build the boat to get into this position where they were saved. I think that's where the religious element and the salvation potentially, um, I don't know of any other way. Maybe there was a near miss by a comet and they all got a bit shaky as to what might happen next. And then, you know, if, I guess if you had like a, what could you, let me try and think of something here. If you had like a big rubble pile went past a very, a breaking, a comet, which is getting close to the sun and it broke up and big parts of it came um, crashing down to earth and created tsunamis, which was survivable, difficult, but survivable, it is understandable to then be like, wow, we need boats. And if that asteroid somehow or another asteroid coming our way um, then hit, or that one came back on its orbit and hit us later on, those boats could be suddenly useful in a way that seemed quite mystical and magical. But um, I, 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 I do struggle a little bit with this some some points, okay? Um, let's have a look at it um, from Islam. Um, in contrast to the Jewish tradition, which uses a term that can be translated as box or chest to describe the Ark, Surah 29.15 of the Quran refers to it as a Safina, an ordinary ship. And Surah 54.13 describes the Ark as a thing of boards and nails. Well, that's pretty, that's pretty exact, isn't it? Again, you can have people replacing in words later on. Someone says um, it's a container and later someone says it's a ship and then later on someone says it's a coracle and then later on someone says it's a wooden ship and later on again someone says it's made of boards and nails. So you need a lot of boards and nails to build a, um, a ship that's uh, 500 feet long. But um, how are we to know exactly how all this came down to us, right? Um, let me have a seat. Uh, I, I do apologize for the way I'm going to be able to uh, uh, mess up these names. But um, uh, Abdullah Allah Ibn Abbas, uh, a contemporary of Muhammad, wrote that Noah was in no doubt as to what shape to make the ark and that Allah revealed to him that it was to be shaped like a bird's belly and fashioned of teak wood. Well, I've got to say, if you're going to build a boat, uh, a bird's belly. Yep, I can I can see that like a. Maybe not a pigeon's belly, but like a, a, a seabird's belly, like a dished bottom and made of teak. Teak is an excellent choice to build a boat out of. It does create some issues. It's a massively strong hardwood. You've got to like cut it up and fashion it into things and all the rest of it. And then you're going to have to build it 500 feet long and it's going to be the only vessel of its size for thousands of years. But, um, you know, sure, he's he's 
he's pretty exact about it. Certainly we could say that at that time, the facts they had about the Ark identify for us that it's a very old story. Abdallah ibn uh, Umar al-Baidawi, writing in the 13th century, explains that in the first of its three levels, wild and domesticated animals were lodged. In the second, human beings, and in the third, birds. Well, that's good because it's kind of like heavy things at the bottom and light things at the top. That makes sense. On every plank was the name of a prophet. Three missing planks, symbolizing three prophets, were brought from Egypt by Og, son of Anak, the only one of the giants permitted to survive the flood. The body of Adam, uh, of Adam, of Adam, ah, he's back, was carried in the middle to divide the men from the women. Surah 1141 says, And he said, Ride ye in it, in the name of Allah, it moves and stays. This was taken to mean that Noah said, In the name of Allah, when he wished the ark to move, and the same when he wished it to stand still. Okay, so he had a way of like moving this thing. That's an important thing. Like, if you've seen that film, um, 2012, where they have uh, Monday arcs, like, um, boats that they create to survive some incredible like lithosphere slip event which happens um they they have a massive problem where they're like crashing into a mountain as it as this thing takes off and goes the idea that the waters come up out of the ground like these external waters to the world come up from underneath the firmament or rather up from underneath the flat plane of the world um into the area which is encased by the firmament and that these massive waters just come in and flood everything um that's a very nice way of looking at it. Everything that we've seen since, every piece of knowledge we have is that when water comes in and inundates things, whether it's by mudslips, whether it's by river floods, by estuary floods, by tsunamis, it is always catastrophically uh, precarious situation to be in as a human being. We are not tough enough or rough enough to be able to stand being in a tsunami um, or some giant like slip of water uh, or water caused slip from a mountain. Um, and that means that whatever this vessel was, as it set off, it didn't just float up gently on the, the floodplain to kind of bob around on a mill pond for six months. This would have been an incredibly difficult uh, ascent uh, to even get to the point when the, 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 the land was... Where did you build it? <laughs> the, this, this, the suspicion would be that the best place to build it would be on a high point of land, and then it will float up from there, and it will be going over the top of everything else. But clearly, that's not going to work if you, you know, it came to rest 5,000 meters up. I don't think they built it 5,000 meters up. So that means that it was on the water as the water went up, up through the valleys, up through everything else. I think if we if we want to hold on to it was a world flood, then God in that circumstance is tasked with um, changing very particular rules to create an outcome that he's designed where upon it would just be like, wouldn't it be easier just to get everybody to go up to the top of a particular mountain and then um, and then make it so the floodwater doesn't go higher than the top of that mountain. Like the, the other issue is that when you're up in these super high altitudes, you remember that uh, you start to get into altitude sickness. When you start to get to a point where water has displaced the atmosphere of the planet and, you know, because obviously the air comes right down to sea level right now. Um, if you're then going to displace that air upwards, you're at a point where you'd start to lose the atmosphere, that the, um, the, the air would be that far away from gravity holding it on that you'd lose the atmosphere. But let's not get too caught up in that because that sounds like I'm trying to un unpick it too much. But um, 
if it's happened, there was a way in which it happened, which our science at the moment is unable to uh, fully explain for a number of reasons. Uh, let me ever see. Okay, let's go. The medieval scholar Abu al-Hasan Ali ibn al-Husayn Masuid. Oh my goodness. I'm so sorry for this. I'm just, I'm not used to reading these kind of names. Anyway, he died in uh, 956. He wrote that Allah, uh, Allah commanded the earth to absorb the water and certain portions which were slow in obeying received salt water in punishment and so became dry and arid. The water which was not absorbed formed the seas so that the waters of the flood still existed. Okay, Masuid, Ma Masudai says the ark began its voyage at Kufa in central Iraq and sailed to Mecca, circling the Kaaba before finally traveling to Mount Judy, which Surah 1144 gives as its final resting place. Okay, Mount Judy. Where's, I'm going to click on that. Mount Judy is, uh, is this in Turkey? Ooh. Okay, here we go. Yeah, it's in southeast Turkey. It's uh, it's uh, northeast of the town of uh, Jazirat ibn Umar, which is modern Sizri in southeast Turkey, at the headwaters of the Tigris. Uh, how it's two thousand meters high, six thousand eight hundred feet. So it's getting better. It, you know, it's two thousand meters, a lot less than five thousand meters, which you need for um, Mount Ararat, but it's still. 1,900 odd meters higher than it's possible for the world's water to flood the world at the moment. So we've still got a little bit of an issue, but I think the thing which you get from this is a heck of a lot of smoke with this story. Hey, we might not be able to identify exactly what the fire is, but Noah's Ark and the story of Noah's Ark and variations of it seem to be all around uh, the, the Middle East area um, in quite you know high density. It was obviously a very important uh, thing. Um, Let's have a look here now. Uh, the first century historian Josephus reports that the Armenians believed that the remains of the Ark lay at the mountain of the Cordelians in a location they called the Place of Descent. Uh, he goes on to say that many other writers of barbarian histories, including Nicolaus of Damascus, Berossius and Manasius, mention the flood in the Ark. The first edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica, so we're bringing it up to date here a little bit. The first edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica from 1771 describes the Ark as factual. Well, that's interesting, hey? So in, uh, as, as, as late as 1771, um, the Ark is a fact. And I guess that's something that's very, very important that we should um, discuss here. The fact that modern science... Modern science has a couple of things going on in it, which it's it's worth noting. Since Galileo, we have decided that it's best to pursue science by cutting out the, the conscious, by cutting out the, the heart, by cutting out the spirituality thing. That is Galilean science, that you just deal with what is provable and, 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 um, and, and fact-based, empirically fact-based. And it's been very, very good for us in, in many ways. We've learned a lot about the world because we're able to cut out the spirituality things, which kind of were a confusion for a long time. It was difficult to understand the world through that lens. Um, what then happened is that in the early 1800s, as we discussed before, when we were talking about um, flat earth and all that kind of stuff, um, we started to get this feeling that perhaps a lot of what we've been told in the Bible was not correct. And this began when we started to study geology and realized that these changes happen over a very long period. At that point, 
a lot of science then turned completely away from anything and everything that was in the Bible. And a lot of the things which are in the Bible, like the flood, uh, flood story, it's catastrophism. It's, um, it's uh, things that happened which were like at the behest of God. And they were so awful that scientists from the yeah, 1850s onwards would turn away from any kind of theories that involved catastrophe. I know Randall Carson, who is a... Uh, uh, he's an amateur geologist, but in the same way that um, <laughs> I don't know what's the what's the comparable. Are the people at the Olympics like uh, amateurs as well? I think that's true. So yeah, Olympic um, Olympic judo person is an amateur. Uh, amateur means a love of, um, and I think the next thing always has to come after that is like, how amateur are you? Because <laughs> a lot of people that have got qualifications and things who really don't know that much. I've supposedly got qualifications in linguistics, but don't really ask me any serious questions about linguistics. Um, I'm an amateur sailor, but I love sailing. I suppose I do have some professional qualifications, but most of it's through through being a lover of it. Randall Carson is a great lover of um, ge uh, geological information and uh, historical information and uh, has a lot of very interesting things to say about geological features in the American um uh, channeled scablands out in Washington state looking at these enormous features which if you just take a cold slice and look quickly at them to any of us who don't know much about anything it looks like a lot of water went through this area like you know 100 foot chasms of water like exactly what it would look like if you emptied a big bucket of water out onto sand that's kind of how this landscape looks but for the longest time geologists have said no it did not happen all in one it's evidence of gradual erosion it's only in the last couple of decades that people have actually started to say okay look maybe it happened in a couple of very large floods and what randall carson and these guys are pointing out is the fact that when this meteorite or this rubble pile or whatever it was hit uh, Greenland, the um, it was called, oh, I nearly remember the name, Lake Azula. Oh, I'm going to have to look this up now. My goodness me. the, um, the This massive uh, lake, which was underneath the ice of the Laurenti Glacier, um, uh, it, it, it flooded. And when it flooded, it released huge quantities of water, which um, cut through the channeled uh, scablands of, uh, of Washington state, making these, these shapes. Now, why do I say this? Um, science is still trying to get its shit together, basically. Let's be honest about it. There's lots of things that we still don't understand. There's questions that we're still answering. I am not involved in... Um, um, I'm not involved in in day-to-day -day things of science. So I think that what's happening is behind the scenes, everyone's just investigating everything and that they're going to come back with all of the answers and that at some point in the future, there'll be some, some kind of um, moment where we know everything. But the reality is what's happening is that various funding for various projects is more uh, profitable than others. People are trying to keep their jobs. That sounds like reality. Um, that there's um, a number of... Um, realities behind what's going on in science they are as limited in what they're doing as they are brilliant they are as misdirected as they are focused because they are humans trying to do their very best and so at one point we had an issue where we um had these large uh, uh, uh floods in the bible and we believed it up until 1770s we just learnt and thereafter when we discovered that oh hang on not everything in the book in the bible has to be taken as being absolutely 100 percent 
perfectly uh you know as it was written down then we like pushed away from anything to do with it so yeah i've got it finally finally here it's called um glacial lake missoula okay <laughs> i finally got there after an hour but um missoula when it when it flooded huge amounts of water was released so we know that there's been these massive floods we know that people survived it we know we know from genetic information that it looks like we may have come to a, a pinch point um 10, 10 or 15,000 years, no, is that cruise? No, that's a little bit low to about 70,000 years ago. There's evidence in our DNA that we may have at some point got down to as little as 7,000 humans and that everybody, basically, if you lived at that time, you are an ancestor to everybody in the world or you're an ancestor to nobody. And it was only by surviving whatever was going on then, maybe another meteor strike, maybe another flood or something like that, those humans were able to move out into the world and become the human race as it is today. So, Science is still trying to get to grips with all these things. And when we find a, um, a glacier in 2017 that helps us to understand potentially things that are in our religious texts, things that are the wiping out of megafauna in North America, the, uh, uh, the, the massive features in the landscape, and we've only discovered the source of it and started to really kind of point it as a realistic theory in 2017, we start to realize that we have a lot to learn now this doesn't particularly save the arc story because we already kind of know about wood mechanisms and and engineering and materials and everything but it, it gives an idea that um many of the aspects of what's in the arc story might have actually been real so um let's have a look at this yes the first edition of the encyclopedia britannica from 1771 describes the arc as factual it also attempts to explain how the arc could house all living animal types uh -huh. Butio and Kircher have provided uh, geometrically that taking the common cubit as a foot and a half, the ark was abundantly sufficient for all the animals supposed to be lodged in it. The number of species of animals will be found much less than is generally imagined, not amounting to a hundred species of quadrupeds. So says their quote. Uh, it is also endorses a supernatural explanation for the flood, stating that many attempts have been made to account for the deluge by means of natural causes, but these attempts have only tended to discredit philosophy and to render their authors ridiculous. In uh, the 1860 edition, it, they attempted to solve the problem of the ark, being unable to house all animal types by suggesting that a local flood, which is described in the 1910 edition as part of a gradual surrender of attempts to square scientific facts with a literal interpretation of the Bible, that resulted in the higher criticism and the rise of the modern scientific views as to the origin of the species, leading to scientific comparative mythology as the frame in which Noah's Ark was interpreted in 1875. Okay, a little bit dense there, but basically the Encyclopedia Botanica over a hundred years between 1871, sorry, 1771 and 1875, having to kind of like recognize that a, gr a gradual surrender of attempts to square scientific facts with a literal interpretation of the Bible. I, you know, somebody once said to me with things relating to God, it's not important whether you believe in, in God. It's only important if God believes in you. So um, to me, it, whether there is an ark or not doesn't then connect with if there's a God or not. Um, the fact that we are looking for it is very exciting and gives us all sorts of uh, exciting information that uh, we might learn about our own history. But I don't think we have to. <clears throat> I think Christians and non-Christians alike uh, religious people and non-religious people like can enter into this as an interesting um, 
as an interesting discussion of our origin and and where we come from and what's important to us and how we've evolved over time, which we certainly have, whether you're a creationist or an evolutionist, everybody is saying that from a certain point onwards, we have evolved. We've evolved mentally and philosophically and religiously and scientifically. And the arc is an opportunity to kind of, um, is, is an opportunity to uh, see that evolution. We're trying to understand, like, was there a boat? Wasn't there a boat? How big was the boat? How did it, how many people did it carry? How many animals did it carry? I've seen this um, taken on in a number of um, other other sources, looking at the animals, and um, the problem ends up being just to kind of cut through all of that. Look on YouTube for videos about the ark. <clears throat> the the issue is, um, let's say you can get all the animals. The biggest ones, obviously, like elephants and things like that, very, very heavy. But small ones, you know, ducks, like stick insects, like that's not so many. Um, the weight of them is phenomenal. So then you say, OK, well, it's not all of the animals in the world. Let's look at the fam, the, like the family groups. So you don't need to get every kind of dog. You can just get like a dog. You don't have to get every kind of antelope. Just get an antelope. Right. That's so that you can kind of like cut things down that way. The problem is when you need to feed them and you need to water them because all the water that came in is all salt water. How on earth do you keep enough water on board for these things? How do you get all of the dung out of the boat? Like, there's some issues. <laughs> there's some issues with this story. And again, if it's that, you know, God was helping to feed and water them and God was helping to get rid of the dung, it's like it's weird specific things that God's helping out on when he could have just stopped the flood going up and said, hey, get to the top of this mountain and I'll save you. In fact, all mountains around the world are natural osseries anyway because of localized flooding in those areas. Most of the tops of most mountains have a lot of bones on them from animals going up as floodwaters have come um, into their uh, environments historically. So in a way, that kind of would have been more understandable, wouldn't it? Just he said, he said to Noah and his family, Get as many animals as you can. I'll get them to follow you. And then you go to this place. But anyway, what do I know? Um, last bits here. In Europe, the Renaissance saw much speculation on the nature of the Ark that might have seemed familiar to early theologians such as Origen and Augustine. At the same time, however, a new class of scholarship arose one which, while never questioning the literal truth of the Ark story, began to speculate on the practical workings of Noah's vessel from within a purely naturalistic framework. In the 15th century, uh, Alfonso Tostada gave a detailed account of the logistics of the Ark, down to the arrangements for the disposal of dung and the circulation of fresh air. The 16th century geometer, Johannes Butio calculated the ship's internal dimensions, allowing room for Noah's grinding mills and smokeless ovens, a model widely adopted by other commentators. <sighs> okay, I'm going to leave it there from uh, from from uh, Wikipedia. I think it's it's had its uh, it's had the opportunity to to tell us this. There is a lot of information about Noah's Ark out there. I saw also that there are some interesting, very interesting finds in, uh, in, in um, well, it's Armenia, isn't it, actually, where they ended up. This thing with Ararat, Ararat previously, historically, meant the area which is now Armenia. So the mountains of Ararat meant really the mountains of Armenia. But there have been finds made high up on the mountains which do have very boaty-looking shapes okay you can find these on uh, youtube i'll put a picture on here now for those watching on youtube 
these kind of boat shapes, which seem to give uh, ground effect radar recordings showing shapes that could well be the structure of the vessel. Um, I was very interested and dug into these quite a bit, like how, um, you know, how how honest is this? Is this like, is, are we looking at something here that really is a boat up a mountain? Like it might not be Noah's, Noah's Ark, it might be oh, some other civilization, whatever. But the thing that I did know, and I'll uh, again, I'll just circle it here on this image. If you look at this image of this Ark vessel, which they found up this mountain, just look at this line of... Um, of, of uh, some kind of geological formation here. You've got these two lovely curved uh, ellipses which come together to make this like boat shape. But if you look just slightly outside of them, there are other curved strata here, like you've got some kind of geological formation. You're looking at the heart of it and then ignoring the fact that there are more uh, concentric versions of this outside of the bit you're looking at. You're kind of looking at the heart of a geometric uh, anomaly and then saying, wow, look at this. This is, this is the most unbelievable geometric anomaly that's ever been. It must be a boat. Um, and of course, the, the iron that's in there that they're saying, oh, this is the iron. This could have been like where it was uh, built. This is what led to, um, it's the Turkish government, is it? it must be in Turkey. The, uh, the Turkish government saying that this is the place where the Ark came to rest, these geological findings. Um, but again, I think... Uh, getting some people up there with some more modern information, uh, modern uh, instrumentation and a bit more information might be very, very good. Um, Mount, uh, it's Mount Ten Tenderek in eastern Turkey and Mount Ararat um, have been the, the, the focus for these geological investigations and possible remains. But um, a lot of people have shown that they're just natural formations. So where do we get to with the Ark? Let's not take this past an hour and a half because... Uh, <laughs> People will be telling me, oh, shut up, Chris, shut up. The fact of it is that um, there is a lot of historical data pointing to the fact that we have believed in an ark for thousands of years. And that alone has a huge amount of uh, weight to it. Uh, it is very interesting that cuneiform tablets and uh, later variations of the story um, have very similar dimensions. I think that uh, Professor Finkel's... Um, uh, scale version that was built in Kerala in India um, of the coracle with pitch sides answers a lot of questions. Here's a, a construction method which existed at that time, exists now, um, has a construction methodology which is like understandable at least and doesn't require a vessel to be uh, larger than we know a vessel can be and go to sea and be safe. Um, I think that uh, putting pitch on the sides of it um, brings together the original Hebrew word, this gopher wood reference, but then finding out that kopha is uh, is pitch means that the wood was covered in pitch kind of makes much more sense to me. Um, we know from the Wyoming that if a vessel like this was to be in the rough waters that would be pre prevalent when you know, a massive flood is engulfing the world, that that vessel would more than likely be totally destroyed by, by that uh, unless it was being held together by um, like divine will or something. Um, I think what we end up with is a series of, um, it all looks like at any moment it's just about to fall into place and that with it falling into place, there's this desire that, and there was an ark and therefore we can now prove an ele another element of the Bible. I don't think one has to rely on the other and I'm sure for many people it, it's not really that important either way. Um, when you're out on the middle of the ocean and things are going wrong and you uh, call out for someone to help you, I don't think it's necessary for the ark to have been real or not. It's just necessary for you to 
believe in that uh, being and if such a being exists for that being to believe in you and wants to help you so um, the ark to me is the starting point for great offshore sailing um, I think personally that there is a story in here I think when you look at um, Herodotus's uh, map of uh, the known world in um, in like the uh, uh, 2000 years ago what they're showing is basically Greece and France and Spain and North Africa and that area probably flooded and when it flooded um, somebody was saved okay so let's, uh, let's draw all this together then um, I, th I think there's something in it I think that uh, I think there's a story here I think there's an allegory being passed down I think that the um, the, the stories coming through from the Quran from the Torah from the Bible um, on cuneiform tablets is uh, probably the story of a, a great flood that happened in the Mediterranean area or the Black Sea deluge um, I think that people from that area were saved potentially by a boat that already existed or a boat that they were able to build in time um, or that there's some kind of unknown astrono astro <laughs> astronomical yes astro not astrological but astronomical events where some precursor to disaster was sighted or understood or was so obvious that everybody kind of went oh we better build a boat and that boats were built and that they saved themselves with it um, the facts are that a, a vessel of this size is not seaworthy we know that um, we know also that there is not enough water on the planet to raise the water by the amount required for it to be on Mount Ararat. Uh, we saw another mountain that potentially was 2,000 meters high, but there's still nowhere near enough water to do that. So, um, yeah, I guess I can't really take this much, uh, much further. It's interesting to probe around in this, and I really hope that what I've said does not uh, offend anybody. I'm not sure there's many other boats I have to look at which are so connected with... Uh, with religion I don't I don't think so no the the key thing I guess to take away from this is that uh, stories of ships stories of giant boats stories of uh, seafaring and being out on the water have been around for a very long time I guess when I'll throw this in at the last minute is that uh, when we look at things like SpaceX going off to 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 Mars which if you're not aware they're looking to be doing five flights I believe a week within a decade um, that is a modern day arc that is our version of an arc um, that is uh, not going to be taking like two of every animal but I'm sure that given time um, the seed vault uh, which already exists in the northern parts of uh, Sweden there where is it which islands it on Svalbard the seed bank there um, you know it would be very intelligent wouldn't it to get that off the planet and get it somewhere else um, we know that we can do um, DNA modification of animals, so we can do um, cloning, um, and we know that we can uh, freeze embryos, whatever we feel about that, we can do it. And if you were going to um, freeze the embryos of potentially hundreds of thousands, if not millions of animals, you wouldn't need very much volume. Um, I would say to take a guess if we go to Mars and we actually start to get something going there which is somewhere along the lines of uh, stable if we've got more than a million people there the, the the benefit of it whatever whenever we talk about this people say well, we'll not go to the moon it's just as you know it's closer it's got water it's got all the minerals the point with Mars is that it's in a completely different location in the solar system if something comes along and um, 
smashes into our planet and uh, and creates a uh, uh, another nuclear winter, another ice age, some kind of uh, extinction level event, we will need an ark. We will need a container. The Bible uh, and all these old documents give us the, the concept of that and they give it to us thousands of years ago. And that is valuable concept to have. Like, yeah, so something really bad might happen and we may have to we may have to save ourselves somehow. Um, we, for the first time that we know of, have the science now to be able to do that and to do that in an understandable way. If you've got five flights a week going to Mars and most of them are getting there, um, you've got a million people, for example, over on Mars within 100 years, which is what Elon Musk is talking about. And these those Teslas are pretty good cars. Um, Star, the Starlink thing is happening. Um, those spaceships are being built, whatever you Whatever your personal levels of incredulity, it don't seem to be limiting what uh, they are doing at SpaceX. If they move towards that, having a seed bank and having an embryo bank on another planet, which mean if something happened to this planet like war, like an environmental crisis, like some um, uh, interstellar object hits us, um, suddenly the story of the Ark would be would be real and wouldn't be based on the um, the size of the uh, timber or where the timber came from or anything else. The story of the Ark is a story of the fact of keeping things um, safe. It's a story of, uh, if you're looking from the rigidest concept of, uh, of uh, a deity showing their love for the humans, for the good humans of the world and saving them. And I think there's a story there which we can... Um, which we can take, which is thousands of years old, that we have to think perhaps in our near future as the world kind of goes to hell in a handbag, uh, as it seems to do on a weekly basis, that it might be very intelligent to think of ways of getting uh, animals in some form frozen as embryos two by two to somewhere else so that if something happens, we can repopulate. Because if we are pushed back to another um, mitochondrial bottleneck, as it seems that we have experienced in the last 70,000 years, um, humans can be knocked back to the Stone Age pretty quickly. Um, for all the goodwill in the world and for all the additions of The Walking Dead and things that we watch, the reality is that 90% of the people on the planet could not save themselves if they were in a uh, life and death survival situation without modern infrastructure. So having an ark would be extraordinarily useful. So Good. Okay. Well, that was Noah's ark. <laughs> if you've got other vessels that you'd like me to talk about, Oh, none of them can be any harder than this, right? I thought this was the tricky one to get going with. Um, the, we can look at the Wyoming. We can look at a little bit more about that. The Cutty Sark, um, Endurance, Shackleton's Vessel, um, military vessels from the World Wars. I've got a massive interest in submarines. I was like this close to being in the submarine service, but um, without the opportunity to be on uh, diesel electric boats, which I really wanted to be on. I didn't want to be on nuclear boats. I, uh, I shied away from that and went on a completely different life path. But um, yeah, there's definitely uh, lots and lots of interesting boats from history which we could uh, we could talk about and focus in on and uh, and keep this rolling. So if you've got any ideas, put them on uh, the comments down below if you're watching this on YouTube or email me at csmthemariner at gmail.com. If you're watching on YouTube um, and you've got this far into it, thank you so much. However, YouTube works in a particular way. And the way that it works is that the algorithm rewards uh, those little likes. It rewards comments. It rewards uh, sharing. And it rewards uh, how much time you spent watching the adverts and all the rest of it. So um, it's a uh, I'm very happy doing these. I can do more of them when it uh, gives me some kind of uh, uh, money coming back from it so that, you know, hours spent doing this actually go somewhere. So in, in the name of reality and in the name of uh, a, a kind of uh, 
understanding what the, the deal is here, please like and share and subscribe. That helps the channel massively and helps me massively. If you're over on the podcast or on YouTube, consider going to patreon.com and putting a $5 a month uh, donation in there that helps all this lot to happen. And if you have a wider interest or more dedicated interest in learning about sailing offshore through Patreon, each month there's an hour-long seamanship video which is professionally produced here in Nova Scotia with Picnic Studios. You can get those for putting $20 a month down and, um, and join the conversation there. So... Uh, yeah, I hope you enjoyed that. A funny one for me. <laughs> it's strange doing it in front of a camera and not being able to edit everything out, but I guess uh, this is shooting from the hip, which is what this is all about. So wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I hope that you are safe and sound and uh, enjoying your sailing. Now we're getting into warmer times in the Northern Hemisphere, and I shall speak to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.